This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This How to Fail Mental Health Awareness Week podcast special is sponsored by Joe Malone London. Joe Malone London is proud to shine a light on mental health today and every day. They are committed to funding all stages and aspects of mental health, focusing on awareness, prevention, support and treatment. They've created four delicious smelling charity home candles designed to stamp out stigmas one step and candle at a time. 75% of each sale of one of these candles goes directly to supporting mental health projects and inspirational charities who help individuals and families affected by mental health problems. Through their charity candle collection to date, Jo Malone London has given over £2.5 million to their 11 mental health charity partners, helping to raise awareness and stamp out taboo, providing support, empowering people to recover, to reconnect and to grow. So this Mental Health Awareness Week, why not make your home smell absolutely delightful and contribute to mental health charities by going to www.jomalone.co.uk forward slash how to fail. You can discover the Jo Malone London Charity Candle Collection for yourself at www.jomalone.co.uk forward slash how to fail. Thank you very much to Jo Malone London. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. The last time I interviewed Dr. Alex George, it was 2018 and he had just come out of the Love Island Villa. He taught me how to smoulder for the newspaper photos and we talked about what it meant to be a peng sort. Fast forward two and a bit years and Dr. Alex has transformed himself from former reality TV contestant into national treasure. After Love Island, he returned to work as an A&E doctor. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, he has been at the front line in Lewisham Hospital, South London, dealing with unimaginable pressure on a daily basis. 
On Instagram, he shares both his good and bad days and is an honest, informative and calming presence. You get the real sense that he genuinely wants to make people feel better. In February, he was appointed the UK's Youth Mental Health Ambassador. It is an area with deeply personal resonance for Alex. In July 2020, his youngest brother died by suicide. A tragedy, Alex says, that he will never get over. Alex grew up in a village in Carmarthenshire in Wales, the oldest of three boys. He knew he wanted to be a doctor from the age of 12 and went on to study medicine at the University of Exeter, graduating with distinction. When he was 27, producers from Love Island spotted his dating profile on Bumble and asked him to apply to the show. He did and has, he says, no regrets. Well, perhaps just the one, but we'll come on to that later. Today, Dr. Alex is one of the hardest working men in the country. As well as his A&E shifts, he has his own successful podcast, The Waiting Room, is a regular TV presenter and has just published his first book, Live Well Every Day, which promises seven steps to a healthier life. With all that going on, I don't quite know how he's found the time to come on this How to Fail Mental Health Week special, but I'm truly delighted that he has. Dr. Alex George, welcome to How to Fail. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me. And actually, to be honest, it's an honour coming onto this podcast. Now, you did catch me out just before starting this. There is an episode I've missed, which I'll have to catch up on. But I would say that I'm an avid listener of this show. And actually, I've found a lot of comfort, a lot of inspiration hearing your conversations with your guests. So honestly, the honour really is all mine. Oh, you're so lovely. Thank you, Alex. And just researching for this interview and writing that introduction really brought it home to me the pace of change in your life from 2018 when you came out of Love Island to now, which has just been two and a half years, but I know that it has probably felt like many, many lifetimes in one. Has it felt like that for you? It has. It's strange. I feel that the memories of the villa, if you like, and being on that show, to me, it feels like a decade ago, at least that. I honestly, it's unimaginable in a way. And I find it odd to look at the numbers and see that it's only really been a couple of years. And, you know, the last time you you interviewed me, actually, was my first big interview after the show. I remember being quite nervous and you were very kind, actually, to me. You were were very gentle, I think that's fair to say. Um, I just find it strange to think about how much has happened, what's changed. I think when we spoke last, I was probably a little bit lost after the show. I came out and, you know, I didn't have any grand plans going on that show. I was basically being forced to go on it by my (laughs) consultant and good friend of mine who's a massive fan of the show and said, well, you've got to go on there. And then the next thing I know, come out with all these followers and I was a little bit lost, I think. But the best decision I made was going back to A&E, without a shadow of a doubt. And I stuck to my guns. I kind of sat down and thought, what do I care about in life? And what are the issues that matter to me? And mental health and well-being and being a voice of these kind of issues was very important to me. And I followed that throughout. And it's kept me in good stead, I think. It was very impressive. You know, When I met you in 2018, that was for a newspaper interview. And I remember you saying, I'm going to go back to work. And I believed you, but I was like, is that really going to happen at the same time? I was like, how is that going to work? Because you were actually an incredibly famous figure then for something totally different. And yet you have made it work in a way that I really, truly admire. And I think that you're possibly one of the only Love Island alumni who has done that, who has returned to their former life. But it does make me worry about your diary because are you a workaholic? 
Yes, I think there's no hiding away from that. And I think when you look inwards and think about, you know, your strength and your weaknesses, it's strange because my workaholicness, if you like, is both one of my greatest strengths, but also one of my biggest weaknesses as well. And I think I've always been that way. I look back to when I was younger and decided I wanted to be a doctor. I was relentless in the pursuit of that. I really, really wanted to get into medical school and follow my dreams. And, you know, now since everything's been happening, I mean, during the pandemic, you know, to be honest, I was working every hour that I was awake for a lot of it, you know, doing kind of five shifts a week, plus getting up at six in the morning to do interviews and media and create, because, you know, I felt real responsibility during the pandemic to be a source of really good information and a place that people can turn to for advice and guidance. And that was hard because it meant that I was burning the candle, actually, and, you know, working long hours and there was a real battle inwardly because I know in myself how important self-care is and I was doing my very best to do that but also there was being pulled by a sense of responsibility and this inward natural workaholicness that's a part of my character and and finding that balance is, is always a challenge for me I think and it's something I continue to struggle with really. I mean, I'm not an A&E doctor, but I really relate to that mindset where for me during the pandemic, my coping mechanism was my work. So my work expanded to fill all available space. And it's only relatively recently that I've realized, oh, I was using that as a way to feel less scared in a way. Like if I'm doing something, then it's a distraction from what I'm feeling about something. I think it's a lot of people do that. I noticed that from your Instagram as well. And I noticed in a lot of people, my friends, people have different ways of coping with things. And we're all individual people, which is partly why the world's so amazing. But we're all different and we we react to things in different ways. But certainly I was doing the same. You know, if you particularly look at the time when the pandemic started, I was on my own in London. I was away from my family. A girlfriend at the time was away from me as well. So I just worked and worked and worked so that I didn't worry, that I didn't overthink things. And a big part of the last few months and last year, I think, for a lot of people has been trying to find that balance between keeping busy and keeping focused, but also not burning out. And I've been really working on that in the last year to find that right balance of self-care, of time, of quiet reflection, but also keeping busy. Like, I enjoy work. I'm passionate about all the things I do. I love it. But I also have to think, well, this is great. But if you burn yourself out and you're not able to keep up with the commitments and the things that you want to do, then that's not good either. And I think that's why I talk a lot about self-care on my platform, because it's actually something I'm going through. Like no one's perfect. Today, I didn't go out and get fresh air. I didn't actually go for a walk and I didn't actually do my exercise. And then, you know, you go, go, oh, the whole world's fall apart. You reflect and then go, right, actually tomorrow, I'm going to take more time. I'm going to go for that walk at lunch. I'm going to get my exercise in. And, and life is like that. It's a constant learning process, isn't it? Mm. I know you talk about this on your podcast too, but how do you, as a medical professional, cope with the emotional impact of what you were seeing every day especially during the early days of the pandemic when it was a very frightening unknown virus how did you cope with that with difficulty I think I think most medics would agree that we'll carry scars from the pandemic that will last a lifetime and it's learning to live with those scars rather than trying to heal the wounds entirely because you know at the start of this pandemic we were going into a situation where we didn't know whether we'd die and catch the virus. I didn't know when we were going in, but, you know, especially Southeast London, Lewisham. I believe we admitted the first patient. We also had some of the highest numbers and the kind of fastest growing numbers, if you like, of cases. I didn't know what I was going into. I was working in recess all day. So this is the area of the department where patients are the sickest, if you like, and we didn't know what would happen. I had colleagues who ended up being admitted to the hospital, some to intensive care. Thankfully, we didn't lose anyone, but we were very close with a few people. And I would say 
that fear plus obviously what we're seeing and the immense loss of life is tough because you know we work in a and e you know death is a part of my job death is a part of life actually for everyone was why they talk about the certainties in life and one of those things is, is, is death and that's part of the process but it's hard when you're seeing it on the scale that we're seeing it. you know even recently you know over the winter it was scary and actually at one point this winter i would say was the scariest because we were in a position where we'd run out of ventilators really pretty much i mean i i saw a patient one day and I gave the patient the last ventilator at that point, which is a very scary thing to do when you start getting to the point where, you know, you, you probably heard and saw in the news like a major incident being declared in London. And obviously there's more complexities into what that really means. But for us as doctors on the front line, what that really means is that we have to make decisions based on service provision. You know, we're not in the luxury of having an infinite number of beds and ventilators. So we put us in a position where we would have to make very difficult decisions about who got the ventilator and who didn't. And I think that is a really, really horrible place to be. As doctors, we want to help everyone. You know, we want to help. Like that's why I am a doctor. And those were very, very challenging times and times that I think I'll carry for my life, I think. I can't thank you enough for what you do for the rest of us. How important is a sense of humour in these situations. Because I know that when you first started wearing PPE, you taped a topless shot of you from Love Island. Is that right? On your PPE so that people could recognise you? <laughs> yeah, I did it as a bit of a tongue-in-cheek. I didn't see patients with it on. It was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek for social media, just to make people smile, really. Because, you know, when people ask, you know, how do you have humour and stuff in working in A&E? And Honestly, without it, what would we do? You know, you have to have a sense of humour and try and lift the spirits of people around you, have that camaraderie, that teamwork, because it can be really stressful a lot of the time. So we had a bit of a giggle and stuff. But yeah, I undoubtedly enjoy working with my colleagues. And one of the things I would say is that obviously at the start of the pandemic, everyone was locked at home. Actually, in some sense, it was a comfort for me going to A&E because I was around my family, basically. You know, I've known these guys for years now and I feel very close with them. So we have great camaraderie have a laugh and even in the darkest of times we try and make each other smile because we talked about this actually during the time we said you know if you let every patient get to you and every case made you cry or break down or you you struggled with every patient you saw you wouldn't be able to do your job effectively you've got to be able to have an element of that barrier now I'm not saying that decompressing that being emotional or having these things affect you isn't important because it doesn't and it's part of who we are but also being able to have a level of making that separation is important too. And that's what we do. We separate. We have to. Do you have therapy or do you just work this out yourself? Actually, after Love Island, I actually had therapy myself just to deal with the change. I think when you talk about mental health and well-being and, you know, risk factors for worsening or ill health, change is one of the biggest ones. So we talk about transition points. We talk about transitioning from primary to secondary school. We talk about transitioning from school to university or work or the work life. And if you look at what I was going through at the time, it was a transitional period, leaving Love Island, and I had to get used to it. With regards to the pandemic, I will definitely be getting therapy in time. At the moment, I still feel that we're a little bit in the bunkers. We're only in the process of exiting the battlefield at the moment. And there's that idea that you almost need to separate from the trauma before you deal with that. And everyone's different. Some people have had therapy ongoing throughout. But for me, I kind of want to feel a, a sense of separation and then, you know, in time. And then I will start to deal with a lot of this stuff. Because, I mean, look, you know, with my brother, I mean... I haven't had time to grieve. I mean, I've been away from my family since the last time I saw them was the end of the summer, you know, and since then it's been his birthday, my dad's birthday, Christmas, my birthday, and my mum's birthday. So we haven't had a chance to move forward. So I think there'd be a lot of processing to come, I think, in the next 12 months or, or even longer. 
I'm so sorry for what you and your family are going through. I really am. We will, as you say, come on to that because you very generously have chosen to speak about it as one of your failures. Before we do, I have a couple of questions for you. One is, what's the obsession with bath bombs? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? So I've always kind of liked bath bombs. There's a nurse at the hospital who's kind of like a really big sister to me, and she's amazing, called Amanda. She's a fantastic nurse as well. She really is. And she said to me one day, a month or so after the pandemic had started, and said, Alex, you look tired. You're working ridiculous hours. Like, I know what you're doing behind the scenes as well. You're working hard. You need to, like, you know, chill out a bit. She said, you love the bath bombs. And one day she brought me in a bath bomb and said, look, go home tonight. You know, I was finishing shift at 11 o'clock and she said, look, just have half an hour before we get to bed to unwind because you're wired anyway. We've had a crazy shift. And so I jumped in the bath and thought, oh, God, this is quite nice, actually. I quite like this. And then all of a sudden, we from then, we all started buying each other bath bombs. And it was a way of lifting each other. So we'd order different ones and bring them in and surprise each other. And then from then, one day I sat there and thought, I'm actually going to launch my own company. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what are you do? Because I'm, I'm, I'm that person that always has ideas. I'm like, right, I've got a great idea. You know, let's do this. And so I came up with this idea about the bath bomb. And months down the line, I've got prescribed was born. And we can't stock them fast enough now. <laughs> so people quite like That's the brilliant. bath bombs. <laughs> I need to send you some actually. <laughs> oh, I would love one. Thank you. I love a bath. I mean, honestly, talking about mental health, like, yeah, a bath is key for me. But what is it about a bath bomb that you love more than, say, bubble bath? Is it the kind of sense of occasion? <laughs> I think it's a sense of occasion. I do this whistle technique as you throw it in. So it's a specific technique, and anyone who follows my stories will know, and people are copying it as well. Because actually, if you do it right and you whistle correctly, the bath is better. So, you know, right. there's a bit of belief in that. You've got to believe in the process. But it's a sense of occasion. You put the bath bomb in, it's the smell, and you jump in and you relax. I put a bit of Elizabeth Day on the podcast, you know, and chill Aww. out and relax. And for me, you know, like you said there, really, it's for my mental health. You know, if I come home wired, I'm not going to go straight to sleep. Whereas if I get in the bath, I put my phone down, I chill out, some candles on, that is wonders for me mm. to unwind. That a big part of my self-care. Alex, there is such a sweetness to you. There really is. It's such a gorgeous thing to witness because it's so rare in this life. And it's especially rare when you've had the kind of fame and social media presence that you have to retain that sweetness. Please never change. That is just adorable. The second of the two questions I wanted to ask you before we get onto your failures is a more serious one. But I know that you have very interesting things to say about this. What for you is, quote unquote, mental health? What does it represent and what does it encompass? I think this is a very good question because I think the word mental health is probably thrown around quite a bit and it means different things to different people. And perhaps the way I'll explain it is slightly different. I think that, A, everyone has mental health. And I think that you can look at it in some way, slightly oversimplified, but in comparison to almost like a PlayStation game. So if you imagine you're playing a game and you've got your life bar, on there, you're 100% life bar and you've got your zero. And if you hit zero, you get kicked out and start the game again. Most people aren't at 100% all the time. And a lot of people, most people aren't at zero either. And we actually fluctuate in between that zero to 100 for different reasons. Some might be environmental factors, some genetic, sometimes it's situational, what's going on. There's so much complexity that goes into that. But most of us will go up and down in life in between you know, that zero and that 100. And A big part, I think, around connecting mental health with self-care and taking care of your well-being is having a routine and consistently doing the things that keep you as high up that percentage as possible. And when you're 80 percent, 
making sure you keep doing it then just as important as maybe when at 40% because it's about keeping yourself there. And when that percentage drops, knowing what to do, knowing how to react, where to go, who to speak to, and how to try and get that percentage higher again. So I think mental health is all encompassing. There's good, there's bad, and there's in between. That for me is what it is. Mental illness is a separate thing. Yeah. And that's a great point about doing it at 80% as well as doing it at 40% rather than thinking I'm, I've got it sorted now and I'm fine. I know you talk about this a lot, just to extend the metaphor and really like squeeze it till the pips creak. <laughs> to extend it, like in a way that computer game and that life bar, you acquire skills as you carry on playing, don't you? So you acquire resilience the more that that bar fluctuates. So tell us about resilience. Yeah, and that's a really important point is that throughout life, we learn and we develop these skills. Part of these skills are developed through learning to fail and learning from our failures. And I always say that in life, I think you learn far more from your failures than you do your successes. And when it comes down to resilience, it's learning, well, actually, if something goes wrong in my life and I drink loads of alcohol, I don't sleep well and I eat terribly, actually, I feel worse. And therefore, you know, next time that happens, you learn from that and go, well, actually, maybe I won't drink. I'll avoid the drink if something bad's happened. I'll exercise a bit more and I'll talk to people. So it's learning that process. And I think resilience is bringing those lessons together and learning from them. It's also what we teach people. And that's why I talk about in my role in youth mental health, I think it's giving young people from a young age the tools they need to develop their own resilience. We can't prevent bad things happening in life. And you talk very honestly, Elizabeth, about your experiences and obstacles and things that you've faced. You can't prevent them happening. The pandemic, what can we do to stop that happening? It's not something you can control but you can control things in your sphere of influence. So if we give children the tools and they understand about nutrition, about exercise, about sports, about communication, you, we destigmatize mental health. We'll give them those tools that develop that resilience. And part of resilience as well, and I, very important, I think we touch on this. Resilience doesn't mean being stoic. It's not about going, there's nothing wrong, I'm fine, or I'm now invincible. I think a big part of resilience is inward recognition. It's being able to go, actually, I am under pressure at the moment, or something's happened, or I'm not feeling good. And part of that resilience is being able to have the strength to reach out and talk to people and get people involved to support you. So it's not about being alone or singular or stoic. It's actually about that awareness and self-awareness. So actually, you're resilient because you bring people in to support you to get you back to yourself again. Oh, you are so speaking my language. I love that. Resilience is a form of inward recognition as well. That's brilliant. Just tell me quickly, what was it like meeting Boris Johnson? It's one of those moments in life that you don't really expect. When I launched the campaign and I put everything together online and I'd spent months speaking to experts in mental health and put together you know, a lot of their ideas about what we need to do and I launched that campaign. I never thought I'd end up sat there opposite the Prime Minister. You know, the, let's be honest, the busiest man in the UK at the moment. It was in a Margaret Thatcher's old room. and There's a painting of her behind his head, actually, while I was talking oh, wow. to him, which was slightly off-putting. It was incredible. I mean, it's a really good thing. Whatever we say about different things, and I think, you know, the mental health has sadly been ignored for many, many years. And I think that issue is much deeper than I think just politics. It's a cultural thing. To be sat there with a Prime Minister in the middle of a very busy time and talking about mental health was a really incredible thing. And I thought, you know what, if we can carry this and we can do something good with this, then let's make a big change. So I feel really positive about it. It's not easy. It was a scary day and it's been scary every day since, but we'll get there. Mm. What was his hair like? Messy. 
<laughs> I actually really wanted to bring a comb with me, but I thought if I do that, it's not a good start uh, to the role, is it? If I bring a comb along and start tidying his hair up. But he was like, been interviewed the other day and he said, <laughs> they asked him about when his haircut was booked. He said, I don't know about that, but I'm booked in for a pint on the 12th. <laughs> so maybe you can see the priorities, priorities there. <laughs> priorities. I've had my haircut today, actually, so I feel happy. <laughs> I feel happy. I've oh, had my excellent. <laughs> Yeah, I've got yeah. mine booked for Friday, just for context, because you'll be listening to this in May, but we're talking in April and the first phase of lockdown appears to be over. But if your bath bomb range ever extends to hair care, you can send him some. So there we go. Um, Good idea. Thank you so much for these failures, Alex. Your first failure is failing to get the grades for med school. So tell us about that. So think from quite a young age I decided I wanted to be a doctor I love the idea of science I love adrenaline I I like the idea of learning and I like teamwork so it was like perfect career for me really I'd watched the early versions of City Hospital and 24 hours in A&E those in those days and this is the career for me you know I'd worked so hard um actually me myself and my best friend were due to go to Liverpool to study he had a place at the dental school I'd had my place at Liverpool Medical School for context, you know, the school I went to, it was a nice school, but I think it's fair to say it was not common that people went to medical school. It had been a few years and there was a lot of pressure on me, I think, to get those grades. And everyone was very interested in seeing that I got the place. And it came to the day and, you know, it's oh, it's one of those things. We all, family turned up, everyone there, you know, a lot of my friends, they were waiting to see if I got the grades. And I went in and I sat down with the deputy head and he said, I'm really sorry, your chemistry coursework's been dropped. It's been reviewed or whatever, and it's been dropped the marks. And even though you got your A's in the chemistry exams, it means you missed out by your A grade by two marks. And in context, there's 600 marks available, two marks. Oh and after that, the head teacher was really upset and rung the Liverpool Medical School and said, listen, Alex is a, you know, this is what he's just saying. I'm not, <laughs> not being myself. She said, look, Alex can be a great med student. He will be a brilliant doctor. Don't miss out on having him there because of two marks. Like, just trust me. And they wouldn't give me the mark. They wouldn't give me the place. They said no. So I had to watch my best friend, who I've known all my life, go off to Liverpool. And I had to accept not having those grades. And I went home that night and I sat down with my mum and she was crying. You know, you're upset. What's upsetting you so much? And she said, I'm just upset because you've worked so hard and you wanted this and you really deserved it. And I said, mum, I remember it now. She sat opposite. I said, mum, don't worry. This has been painful. But I've learned how painful this is. And I'm never going to let this happen again. So I'm going to get my grades, I'll reapply, I'll do this flipping UK CAT test again, I'll get the interviews and I'll get another place and I'll never let it happen again. And actually, because of that failure, I had a fantastic year. I went out to South Africa to see my granddad who passed a year or so afterwards, so I had invaluable time with him. I really learned from that failure and I got my place you know, at Exeter and I went to Exeter and you know what? I got a distinction. I did really well because I learned I'm not having that taste of defeat again. That was horrible. And I really learned from that failure. And where does that chutzpah come from? That you've been told this at that time, contextually quite devastating news, and your mum is crying. It's but you're you're able to find that resilience within yourself. Where does that come from? Are you just born with it? I think it's a mixture of things. I think you can develop resilience from outside factors. And I think a lot of it comes from my mum. I think my mum instilled in me this kind of idea. I mean, she used to say every night when I went to bed, I used to go to my teenage years, I'd get really annoyed. But every time I went to bed, she said, Alex, you can achieve anything. 
you want in life as long as you put your mind to it and she said that every day and imagine that every day in your life eventually like mum stop saying that like stop saying (laughs) but that was the kind of environment I grew up in and she always talk about failures and learning from mistakes and learning from that and my dad had that same kind of sense of you've got to just accept that sometimes in life things don't go your way but the way that you judge yourself really is how you react to a situation but yeah I think some of it's internal I think I've definitely had my knockbacks a lot of knockbacks in life you know I've had a lot of luck and good luck and things as well but there have been moments and that was one of the biggest moments the thing is when I went to med school then and I was there I noticed there's people around me who maybe had went to schools that were private schools and maybe had slightly easier journeys into their place than I had you know again I'm not doing this for comparison's sake and I think everyone has their own battles but in this sense they may have had slightly easier journeys into that place but when I got there I valued that place so much and I thought I'm going to make the most of this because I know how much pain I went through to get here and I made sure I did well and it really really helped me because you know if you think about it you know when you're at medical school each year around five ten percent of people have to reset per year so there's a good chance that in the five years you're probably gonna have to reset I didn't and I came out with you know my ideal grades and ended up with my ideal job you know working in King's which actually was my dream job ever to work in King's College Hospital in London. And I got that job and it was all down to that failure, that me missing out on those grades taught me an invaluable lesson. And I think that's why when I talk about instilling the tools in children, it's not about wrapping them in cotton wool because life isn't like that. And still, you know, look what happened with my brother. I know we're going to come on to that. You know, you, you cannot prevent some things happening in life. Bad things happen. It's how you deal with it that really matters. How did you find the social side of university? When I first arrived at university, I found it quite different because I, you know, I was from, as you mentioned, Carmarthenshire in Wales, you know, in a quite a rural, quiet area. I'm an introvert, naturally. And it took me time to settle in, but I made a good group of friends, a really solid group of friends. And they were invaluable to me. And, you know, one of the other things I think that happened in my earlier years, I guess, in my 20s, that was defining for me is that one of my closest friends, Freya, got leukemia from blood cancer. She was an incredible individual. I mean, really, really amazing. And actually, she ran, I think, two or three charities she'd set up herself. She spent her summers in Africa. I mean, she was like, you know, like people in life, you're like, they're really good people. They make you feel bad. I was like, she is like a really good person. And as well, she's amazing at sport and everything. She's quite annoying, actually. She's just really good. And anyway, she, we were really good friends. I would actually said to her, I worried you got bruising on your arms and things, and you should check that out. And she went to see the doctor and she was called in and told that she had leukemia. And she sat us down, actually, and said, look, this is what's happened. I need to start chemotherapy. And the type she had was very aggressive. She would have been dead within a matter of weeks if she hadn't started treatment. And from that point, she went into isolation. She was literally studying at medical school from a literal isolation hub in a hospital and spent the best part of six months in there, multiple rounds of chemo, sat end of year exams in there, had a bone marrow transplant, and she came out. And she actually, within months of having the transplant, she then run a marathon to raise money for charity incredible person but very sadly she had a relapse of the cancer and died very quickly after being told and, and before she died when we sat down sorry I'm making this episode very depressing I'm but so I don't sorry. Mean to. No, when we said when she sat down oh. and she said to me Alex I'm at the end of my life when I want to do all this stuff I'm so frustrated because I can't like do the things I want to do but she said to me live your life say yes to things put yourself in situations that are uncomfortable push yourself and enjoy your life because I can't now do that. I want you to, because you knew I was introvert, I want you to live and live your life. And that is the reason, really, I think that I've done a lot of the things since, including Love Island, including this now, because this is all miles out of my comfort zone, really. But because of what she said and what she instilled in me, I think that was a big part of becoming who I am today. 
Here's to Freya. What an amazing Freya. woman. She was amazing. Yeah, uh, she was. She was amazing. I'm getting chills. I really am. Thank you for sharing that. That was so beautiful. I'm very, very interested in introversion because, well, it probably won't surprise you because you're one yourself who successfully yeah. learned how to be in a world geared up for extroversion. I'm also an introvert. And so in a way, the podcast and everything that's come from it has been a completely unplanned, mind-blowing thing for me because I don't actually feel that comfortable a lot of the time broadcasting. But I think that what you and I do, which is different, is that we get our energy, our kind of nurturing resource from connection. And that's what I really value from you. And I think that's what we're doing now where we and our introvert selves are able to have this moment of connection remotely. We're not even seeing each other. And there's something that feels very comfortable about that. But how did you cope with Love Island? I think you're right, especially, I think, you know, your comment around the world being geared up in many ways to extroverts. I think that's very true. And it comes down to where you draw your energy from, doesn't it? Like I... I draw energy, like you said, from connecting with people who are very like-minded, often other introverts as well, in smaller, quiet spaces, maybe just in smaller groups. I draw a lot of energy actually being on my own, you know, sat happily in my bath bomb pill bath, yes. just sitting there and chilling <laughs> or reading a book or something or going out for a ride or walking. I mean, I walk so much. I'm on my own, really. You know, I'm in my own space and it helps a lot. Coping with everything. I'd imagine, I wonder what your kind of thoughts are on this, but I see a lot of the things we do, particularly being on TV or in elements that are really exposed, as expending energy. I have like as many tokens as I build up through having time in introverted space or in space of quiet and building my energy up. And then I can spend these tokens on talks or being on TV. But there's only so many tokens available at a time. So I have to be careful with that because like, otherwise you, know, you can easily become burnt out, actually. And sometimes I am exhausted. Sometimes if I have a busy day and I've been doing TV or whatever or lots of radio, I'm exhausted when I come home. And a lot of times extroverts would actually be energised by that, but I find it tiring. I feel exactly the same. I think lockdown has given me a sense of clarity about the things that I find nourishing and the things that I don't. And I've often felt very guilty about the things that I don't find nourishing. Like, for instance going out in the evenings for social reasons should be really lovely, right? It should be great. <laughs> and I love my friends more than anything, but I find that really draining. I've realised now that I need to have more nights in with my Alex George bath bomb. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I need to do that more. And I almost need to build that into my diary. Yeah, agreed. I do the same. I, I enjoy going out with my friends, but I see them as an expenditure of those tokens. Again, the same as you mean, it's nothing against my friends. I love them, but it is an energy consuming process. It's an important process. And actually, it's always a balance in life. Because if I didn't go out at all and didn't see my friends at all, that would make me miserable. And I'm sure you'd say the same. So it's a balance, doesn't it? And I think, as you said, the world is geared up for extroverts. So I think for introverts, you do actually have to make active choices to protect your time, your energy, and make sure you're not burning out, really. So was there a safe space for introversion? on reality television because sometimes I love a big party and I think it's because I don't need to do 
the draining social performance. I can sort of be on my own in a crowd <laughs> and dancing to House of Pain. And like I'm fine with that because no one's really demanding anything of me. But in Love Island, how did you cope with constantly being filmed? I don't think there was a space for introversion on Love Island. I don't think. I didn't. I felt very tired and drained a lot of the time. There was, the only space there was was when I was in bed. I could close my eyes. I don't think there was a space for introversion because by nature of what they wanted, you want people to sit down and have conversations all day, you know, be running around, be performing basically, you know, for the whole duration. So I was thoroughly exhausted at the end of that show. Were you allowed to take books in the villa? No books, no music. I uh, can't, I can't. I just couldn't do it. So no (laughs) ways out really. If you think of ways that I manage, you know, I, I go for walks. You can't walk outside the villa. And walking laps on the villa, I wouldn't count as that. Actually, do you know what? I did have one space. And you know where it was? Because it's funny. I always used to ask me about it. I used to go in the swimming in the pool in the morning. So I get up early in the morning. I do 40, 50 laps of the pool. And the reason I did that is you could take your mic off. You could swim. You didn't have to talk to anyone. I was in my own space. And I forget now. I calculated how many laps. So I did like 50 laps a day for eight or nine weeks. So I'd done a lot of swimming. And they said, you know, they asked me about it. And I said, well, actually, the reason I do it is I need my space. I need to have some space where I recharge. So relatable, but boy, you used up a lot of tokens, Alex. I mean, I salute you for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have. I have. And I, the thing is, I think it's probably paid its toll a little bit now because I think I took a week off, a real week off, and quite a quiet week last week because I'd burnt the candle so hard. I think I was beginning to have an early potential signs of burnout. So I, the last couple of weeks, I've actually had a, a real stop and reset. And also I've looked at prioritizing time and thinking about how I'm spending time because you know, you only have so many tokens and if you keep spending them out and you're taking from reserve tokens or reserve energy, that can only last so long. I'm going to move on to your second failure now. And there is no easy way to bring this into our conversation because your second failure is that you say that you didn't spot signs of your brother struggling. So I want to just preface this whole section by saying how unbelievably sorry I, and I know everyone who is listening to this will be that you've had to go through this, but please tell us why did you choose this as a failure? I think when I was thinking about my failures, and I think there's probably plenty more I could talk about, but when I was thinking about my failures for this podcast, I could not discuss this, I think, because it will always stay with me, I think, throughout my life as one of the things I'll feel that I failed the biggest failure probably in my life and it's interesting because it's not necessarily a failure that I probably could have done anything about you know my brother was silent in the sense that he didn't say that he was struggling he was definitely fed up of lockdown and he was anxious about his exam results he was waiting for results for his place at medical school you know he was due to go to Southampton at the time so understandable he was quite anxious about that but other than that, we really had no idea. And it was it was a phone call I had from my dad while I was out with some friends having some food. So this was in the summer, so we're in very difficult situations with restrictions. And, you know, my world ended that night. I mean, it was, you know, a part of me died that night. And I think you'll never get that back. I felt physical pain from the pain that I was experiencing. It was strange. I went to places that I didn't think existed in the human mind, to be honest. And so, you know, that, that feeling for me forevermore that, you know, me and Cleo were 10 years and four days apart. So I'm the big brother. He looked up to me. He wanted to go to medical school because I was there. You know, we dressed similar. We both enjoyed our cars. We were very similar people. It was just age that separated us. So for the rest of my life, I have to live in that knowledge of that. And whether I could have done anything, you know, I was here, they were back in Wales. 
I don't know. Would it have made any difference? I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the only thing I could ever wish is that he'd have reached out and said, you know what, I'm struggling, help me. And that would have given us the opportunity, I hope, to have done something. But of course, I'll live with regret. And my whole family does. My mum, my dad, my other brother, Elliot, will always live with that, I think. It's impossible not to. Can I ask you what he was like? It's funny because the simple answer to that was like me, I think. He was an introvert. Um, he looked like me. He was even the same height as me by the time. He was obviously 19 at the time. Um, he was very caring. He was very sensitive, just like I am. Really. I'm a very sensitive individual. I think I've developed a thicker skin when I choose to. But I think underneath, I'm always that sensitive boy. And I think he is that same person as well. When I look back on why he did what he did, I, I suspect the pandemic was a huge factor. You know, before that, he was really looking forward to the next steps in his life. I think he was future planning. And I suspect the pandemic, the stress, the worry, because he was a warrior, I think all of that took its toll. And I think when we look at the pandemic, it's not just the damage it's done in terms of COVID and things related to that. It's the mental health that's been huge. And suicide is obviously the sharp end of that. But then there's a huge number of people that will experience ongoing difficulties because of mental health because of the pandemic themselves i mean if you look at children and young people's coalition who do a lot of the forecasting for statistics and forecasting for what will try to happen in terms of trends in mental health they're looking at you know 1.5 million children in the uk either having a knee or worsening mental health because of the pandemic i mean i can't even get my head around those numbers so you know clear i think was one of those people that really was affected by it but yeah for me how can you as an advocate for mental health as a doctor as an older brother how can you not feel a sense of failure so this is a really sensitive young man with so much ahead of him and it's not someone if i'm hearing you right who had frequent episodes of depression this wasn't something it was completely unexpected although he was quiet he had a good group of friends he's very active he's very sporty very athletic there was nothing really to suggest this was coming i don't think it was very much out of the blue that's why it's such a big shock you know in fact he was supposed to come to london a few days later to spend a week with me because obviously the restrictions had changed in the summer and i was going to spend time with him it'd been so long since we had so if you imagine it's just like a phone call you just don't expect you know i it was the strangest thing to hear. I mean, when I first had the phone call, I thought he'd had a heart attack or an accident or something. It would be the last thing I'd have expected. I'm just so sorry. That is so horrendous. Yeah, so it was awful. And we drove back. And I, Elliot, my middle brother, he picked me up. And we drove back You know, as soon as I found out the news. And it was a five-hour journey. And we sat in silence. But that five hours felt like... And that's why I want to say like life before and life after is weird. Because that journey felt like 10 years in that car. I can't explain it. I always wanted to do like a trance. It was very strange. It's weird. I think it's trauma. And I, I think psychologists talk about that, like separation and trauma and what that does to the human brain. But it certainly changes you. And I think I have changed a bit. And I think I don't think I'll ever be exactly the same person as I was before. I don't think that's possible. If you have a life-changing event, how can you stay the same? Yeah, I think that's so true because life can't go on. Like your life as it was, ended when your brother's life ended and you're living a new life now with the knowledge that this can happen and with the yeah. grief that you're carrying, which will shape you forever. And in some ways it will shape you amazingly and enable you to grow in ways that you could never have imagined. And in other ways, 
it is the heaviest burden you will ever feel. Yeah, I talk about this idea of a black box and I think that I've got a black box in my head that sits there and when it happened, it was open and I was just staring into this box the whole time. And as time goes on, you're able to close the box. It sat on the kitchen table, but it's always there. And then, uh, you know, as more time goes on, you're able to put it on the shelf in the kitchen and maybe put some books in front of it and hide it. But it's always there. It will always be part of who you are. I say this in, in a certain sense, not positives, but there's certain elements of good changes that's happened within me in the sense that I now, you know, I think I value life pretty well. I also realize that life is actually quite fragile and that some things really don't matter and the things that really do matter in life. And, and I certainly also want to live as much as I can. You know, I think we often in today's society and the way that we structure lives, we go to school we learn all these things in academia to go to work, to pay a mortgage, to have a family, to get older and everything. It sounds very morbid. I'm not sounding very positive. Sorry, people. But, you know, actually, in a different sense, you can look at it, actually, you know, seize life, take opportunities, make the most, fear less, push yourself, experience life. You know, I, I intend to live you know, after this. You know, I really do intend to travel more, spend more time with people that I care about spend less time with people that I don't care as much about and just make the most of things because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's around the corner, I think. How do you deal with the what-ifness of this profound failure that you perceive it as a failure that you didn't spot signs? How do you deal with that? I know how I think I might deal with it, but I'm very interested in how you do. I don't really know is the honest answer. And I think I'm still learning that. And I think I'll probably be learning it all my life. At the moment, I try to channel that energy into what I'm doing. And I think when you go back to dealing with things, and we talked about it right at the start of this episode, it was around working. And the first thing I did was worked. You know, I took, I think, a couple of weeks off when he passed. And then I went back to working unbelievable hours. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous hours more than daylight hours and I think that I put my energy into that and there's a balance again it goes back to as part of it's about healing allowing grieving to happen and part of it's about keeping busy and keeping positive and I always try and be positive in life and I think that's what I'll try and do and I feel a real role and sense of responsibility to my family I've got a younger brother I need to look after I've got my parents who think of the suffering I've had imagine the suffering they went through I mean it's unimaginable even for me to compare to that it's really hard to understand what they've gone through so caring for them is a big part of I think handling it but yeah I'd be interested to hear what you think really I mean from an outside perspective in a scenario what you think I feel and I realize that I speak from a position where I've just never had to go through what you've been through so this I don't know how helpful it is or not but I think that the way that I have dealt with traumatic periods in my life is to believe that the universe is unfolding as is intended. Now, that's not to say that meaningless things have meaning. It's not to say that trauma is meant to happen. Not that at all. It's simply to release the obligation that I think humans sometimes feel to exert control over the uncontrollable. And also to realise that whatever happens in one's life, the unimaginable tragedy of losing your brother to suicide is on a level of pain I can't possibly fathom. And in the fullness of time, it will teach you, us, something. So even the most painful, meaningless thing, I believe in the fullness of time, I will be taught something that was necessary for me to know. And that's how I cope, I think. 
think that's sound advice. I think we learn from every failure, don't we, and everything that happens. And, you know, the way I see things, if I can save X number of lives off the back of loss of his life, then there's some comfort in that. I think even now, you know, if you think the fact that I'm in this role, which would never have happened under any other government, the fact that I managed to get the Prime Minister to sit down and speak to young people in a video that was aired to everyone about mental health, it's never happened before. These things could potentially save lives. And if we can get funding, if we can make changes, if we can destigmatize, how many lives could we save? Hopefully quite a lot. And I think that gives me a real sense of comfort that if I can prevent other families going through what we go through, honestly, when you talk about and your worst enemy, I wouldn't, to the worst person in the world, I wouldn't wish this. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It's just, it's the feeling of lack of control. You're talking about control. When you have an argument with someone, right, and you have a fight with your best friend, it's an awful fight, or even if you do something really bad, really, really bad, there's an element of repent. You can actually fix most situations in life. There's no fixing this. That's why I really found hard. There was no ability to unwind, to make a phone call, to go and make amends, to change anything. There is no going back. And I think that is the most frustrating because we all like to have control. We talk about that and have an element of things being in our, even if we feel that we're out of control, there is still some way and some element you can exert some kind of control in most situations. No controlling this situation. So that is what I found incredibly difficult. And as someone who's a workaholic, who's type A, who really likes to be in control, it's just the most difficult scenario. There's no trapdoor out. There's no waking no. up from this. Yeah. No. Until recently. I think it's only stopped in the last couple of months, maybe a month or so. I wake up every morning and remember. You know, because you go to sleep and you wake up. I'd forget every day. So I almost have to remember every day what happened. Because it's so unbelievable. Your brain can't accept it. I'd wake up and remember. And that is really, I used to hate going to sleep because I think oh, tomorrow I'll remember again. Oh, Alex. Yeah, so it's a bit is... difficult to go through that. But I wouldn't wish on anyone. And, and I have to carry it, and I will. And I'm strong enough to get through it. If I've got through the first few months, I'm here now. So we'll get there. You're doing amazing. You're doing an amazing job. How are your parents? They're getting there. Well, they're getting there by the time this, this episode goes out. We've got a little puppy that uh, they're going to have, a little dog, um, which is going to be fantastic. It's weird how life happens. One of my closest friends I went to primary and secondary school with had the dog. We ended up having some puppies and said, look, can you take one? We've got, <laughs> we've got so many puppies that are coming and this is the plan for. And we said, absolutely, you know, a dog, a, a new life. They come into the house and they bring this warmth and energy. And I think that is going to be really, really good for them. And something to focus on moving forward. Again, they'll never get over it, but I want them to have a life before and a life after, but have a life after that still has meaning. What's the puppy going to be called? Paddington. <laughs> I've named Excellent. I named him straight away. He's a brown cocker spaniel and he looks like a little Paddington. So that was his name. <laughs> Paddington Bear. Can I close this failure by asking you? to remember something really happy about you and your brother like a happy memory that you have of him we loved our cars we absolutely loved our cars and when i bought my first kind of sports car years ago well flashy car but it felt like a it, the roof went down so it felt like a sports car and we went out for a drive together and he was just beaming like ear to ear and really enjoying that and we went for a spin and i thought you know i just want to work hard in life and make sure that my family can enjoy and be happy and that he can experience these amazing things and it was just the most amazing moment just us out laughing playing music driving the car so I think of him in that way and I know when I go out for drives now and I enjoy my cars he would I know he'd share that with me you know he'd be smiling away say his name one more time for me clear 
Okay. So the only reason I haven't been using your lovely youngest brother's name is because I don't want to do him a disservice by mispronouncing it. So but you say we joke it with him that he had, Yeah, we joke with him and he accepted that if he came to Southampton Med School, he'd have to be called Lloyd, which is actually his middle name. But he did kind of accepted that mostly. You know, I named him, see. So when I was little, I was 10 years old. My parents said, look, we need to choose a Welsh name. You're Alex. You're Elliot Middle Brother. And we haven't got any Welsh names. And we are all Welsh. So I said, well, let's call him Clear. And there it was. So. What does it mean? I don't know, actually. I don't know why I no, called him. Like it. A friend called Clear at school. I thought it was quite cool okay. calling that. <laughs> he is to Clear Lloyd George. He is to Clear. That was good. That was good. Okay. Thank you. Clear, oh. yeah. I imagine that he was super proud of you on Love Island. And that brings us on to our third failure, which is, <laughs> and I remember this so well, your third failure is getting so sunburnt on Love Island. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that wasn't any fun. It's real failure. Now I was listening. It's funny because I was listening to I can't remember the name of it now. You might remember it. There's a song, and that guy talks about. Um, yes. You must sunscreen. wear sunscreen. Yeah, the Basler sunscreen. Sunscreen. The sun. Yes. And it's fantastic. And I listened to that. Well, if anyone hasn't heard that, listen to that because there's some fantastic life lessons. And the number one thing he says is to wear sunscreen. <laughs> and I was thinking, I was listening the other day. I was like, God, I need. And to be fair though, I will say and caveat that, that I did wear Factor Fifty throughout. But unfortunately. I've always suffered in my life with acne and I was taking isotretinoin, which is a form of treatment. People know it as Rakuten commonly for my skin. And unfortunately, Rakuten makes your skin incredibly sensitive to sunlight. So while I was sat out there in 40 degrees sunlight, even with factor 50, unfortunately, I was very, very pink in the sun. But it was definitely a regret of mine and a definite failure. So I wear factor 50 everywhere I go now. <laughs> That's why you've got such good skin, because you're just constantly wearing SPF. I'm careful. You know, my mum actually taught me that. And I think she, when I was on the show, she was just like, oh no, he needs to, you know, what's going on. It was really frustrating for me because obviously everyone on the outside is going, oh my God, this doctor's been so stupid. I was like, I'm literally in fact 50. And the thing was, there's no shade there. Like if you think about the villa, it's just an open area and it's like 40 degrees. And let's be honest, I am a very fair skinned individual. You've got people there who can tan fantastically and don't have the same issue. But let's be honest, I am very fair skinned. So <laughs> I didn't fear very well. Your mum, by the way, sounds absolutely amazing. She sounds like a kind of motivational speaker wrapped up in like a really great parent. (laughs) Yeah, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. I think that at one point there was a Twitter petition to get you some aloe vera. Did they help you with the after sun? They did. And I said, look, let me just sit in the shade. Eventually I got an agreement. That's why my skin had got much better at one point because I had an agreement where I would sit in the shade. They put an umbrella up and let me sit under the umbrella. And I said, this is ridiculous. The thing was, though, do you know what was funny? I wasn't actually that burned. The camera made it look way, way worse. And secondly, you get a redness when you get exposed to the sun on this medication. It isn't so much burnt, if that makes sense. So I was like just really pink, like because the skin just gets really flush. It was really weird. But obviously, to anyone looking on the camera, they're like, oh, my God, he's burnt so badly. But I was literally wearing kid sun cream. (laughs) I really want to come on to ask you more about Love Island, but I also just want to acknowledge something that has become an elephant in the room when we talk about this program. So I loved watching Love Island and I've also had to acknowledge the fact that potentially the exposure around that program has triggered mental health issues that might well have been pre-existing or in the people who've been on it. And not only that, but Caroline Flack, the beloved former presenter, is no longer with us. Have those issues in any way tarnished your memory of that? 
And do you think that there is an association? I think, first of all, it definitely does, of course, tarnish it because, you know, like Karen, I didn't know her very long, but she'd definitely become a friend to me. And she actually used to message me after the show asking me medical questions, as everyone does. Really? Like, what do I do with my ingrowing toenail? <laughs> yeah, exactly, classic stuff like that, really. Or like, you know, what vaccine do I need for this country or whatever? It's just funny. She was fantastic. And Mike, of course, as well, important to mention him. It somewhat tarnished that show. It's difficult because there's so many elements to this. And it's very complex. And, you know, I actually sit on the board now of ITV's mental health group along with many of the charities and, of course, representatives from ITV. And one of the things I want to look at moving forward is that we, A, make sure that what we're showing on TV actually is representative of real life, that we're not causing body image issues and trying to create this perfect image of what a life is. And also that we're picking contestants that go on these shows that are actually able to cope with what happens afterwards. Because I think people think, oh, I go on Love Island, I'm going to be really famous and rich and everything's great and I'm going to go to all these parties and people can pay me to be there and all this stuff. And the reality of it isn't true. Most people that go on Love Island don't become famous. They don't actually have sustained careers. And it's not me being mean at all. It's just the, the reality. And actually... It's pretty stressful. People knowing who you are all the time is actually quite a burden as well. There's no privacy, you know, and I'm not sitting there going, you know, with a violin, I've made my choices. But I think people need to make informed decisions to understand that with every good point, there's a bad point. And I believe in yin and yang in life entirely. I believe in energy and in one direction has an opposing force and opposing energy. And, And I believe that the good things that come with being famous, of which there are plenty, there are equally as many bad things. And, you know, if you're not in a situation mentally, you know, within yourself or within, you know, the scenario you're in, to be able to cope with that, I don't think you should go on a show like that. And I think the responsibility lies with the show as well as the individual. And also I would ask to say, I would caveat as well, that regardless of people's strengths or whatever, or ability to or resilience or whatever, we also need to make sure the aftercare is good after these shows. I think that's very important. So yeah, it, it's a difficult one. I, I still, will I watch Love Island again? Yes, I will. Do I hope that we've learned some lessons from the past? Absolutely. What was it like for your body image? We've spoken there about the redness and the slight sunburn, but did it go deeper than that for you as well? Was it difficult? Yeah, I think particularly before the show, because as I said, I'd never lied that it wasn't really, it came out very left field for me. So if you think the show started being recorded, forgive me, I think it was like May or something around then. I found it in February. So I went from being, you know, I was fit and healthy. I was cycling and I was absolutely healthy and normal. But from feeling, oh my gosh, like I'm not in the shape of these six pack ripped guys to working out so hard and like really restricting my life hugely to be in this shape and actually when I was on that show I wouldn't say I was healthy I might have had abs and whatever but I wouldn't say I was healthy you know I think it was quite damaging so much healthier now like I mean I don't have six-pack now but I can run I can move I'm able physically and mentally I feel comfortable in my skin I think that's very important and that is why I think that representation on the show is so important you know there's nothing wrong with putting people on those six-packs because people are like that but let's not put on every person to look a certain stereotypical way. Let's represent every person in society. Because, I mean, look, people appreciate people who are real. And I'm not saying that people sort of aren't. I'm just saying mm. having people on there who are real, people appreciate. Look who won the show when I was on there. It was Jack. Yeah. Yes, he's a good-looking Jack, but he, and he doesn't mind me saying this because I, you know, I know he doesn't and he's my friend. He, he wasn't there with a ripped six-pack. 
you know, he wasn't there with like defined toned muscles and he won the show. So I don't think you need to be like that to be on those shows. And I think we need to actively make sure we represent better. And also the other thing that everyone always slings at Love Island is that it's just an excuse for us all to watch sex on TV. And Jack and Danny didn't have sex the entirety of the show and they won. So just like to say that to the haters. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I can understand the other points are very valid, but yeah, I don't quite quite understand that. So you're still in touch with Jack. Are you in touch with anyone else from your season? Yeah, so I still chat with like Laura Anderson, Samir and things as well. I mean, I have gone in a very different, probably quite an odd, well, different route to a lot of people. And my life is probably very different to a lot of people. And particularly in the last year, I haven't really seen anyone. So less so probably than previous. But that, that's kind of life is, you know, we all, I think it's important to realise that it's something I've learned throughout my 20s now that I've just turned 30. That I think life, you have friends that are there for your whole life. You've got people who come and go. Life goes in different directions. And I think just accepting that change is a part of life is an important thing. Things are always evolving and changing and you just have to go with the flow. You're so right. But I am going to ask you this question, which is, have you found love yet? No, I, I haven't found love. You know, with everything that's happened, you know, my focus has been very much about the pandemic and getting through this time and particularly what's happened post. And there will be a lot of healing and things for me to do in the next period of time. I think sometimes, I'm not saying I'm not open to scenarios and things happening. I probably do things very differently now. I'd rather be out of the public eye with a relationship. But I think, you know, I am very inwardly focused at the moment and I'm on that kind of healing and getting through the times. Because you went through a breakup during lockdown as well. I mean, you really have had an unbelievably tough pandemic. <laughs> yeah, it's not been the most ideal. I mean, yeah, I've been on my own for a huge amount of time. So going through the kind of being separated from your partner, then having a breakup, then that happening. It's been a bit of a, and obviously working in it as well. I wouldn't say it's probably been the highlight years of my life, but <laughs> they've definitely been, shall we say, character building. So yeah, I mean, look, the way I see it is if I've got through this, I can get through anything. You have to find some positives in the negatives. And again, we learn from our failures, right? That's the whole point. So I'll carry forward these lessons. And you're still so bloody young <laughs> that you're going to emerge from this like the world's most eligible bachelor so I'm not worried about you at all <laughs> I, I don't feel that young I feel I said to the start I feel like I've aged so much I mean I don't know if it's just in my head or not but I definitely I think 30 is, is hit me like a brick I think so we'll see hopefully it slows down a bit now I think you've been delivered a bath bomb of wisdom over this last year that probably makes <laughs> yeah, you feel maybe. like a wise old soul but you don't look it before we bring this that. to a close Alex if someone is listening to this podcast now and they might be struggling and they might feel lonely or they might feel I don't know what to do with my mental health issues or my anxiety what one piece of advice would you like to give them right now well, I think you know, the one thing I wish I could have instilled in my brother is to tell people how you feel and reach out. I know there's a lot of talk around, well, you know, is the support there if you are reaching out? But the only way to find out is doing so. And the only way that you can get better is by trying. So please don't suffer in silence. I think particularly this pandemic has taught everyone that we all have mental health. We've all had ups and downs. I think the conversation around mental health has been more open than ever. And I will be working hard to make sure the resources and the, you know, the support you know, it is even better than ever. But please do reach out, tell a loved one. I always say, think of it in this way. Speak to someone in your family, speak to someone at work if you can, and speak to a health professional. You know, so that way you've got different circles of people who can support you and get you through this tough time. But don't sit there and suffer in silence because that's one certain way I think of things not getting better. Speak about things, reach out. It's great advice. And I will put 
relevant numbers in the show notes for those health professionals that you speak of. But Dr. Alex George, I can't tell you how much I have loved reconnecting with you, how much I have admired what you've done with your profile and how in awe I am of the way that you speak and the courage that you show. And I just want to thank you for being the person that you are and for coming on How to Fail. Thank you, Alex. This How to Fail Mental Health Awareness Week podcast special is sponsored by Joe Malone London. Jo Malone London is proud to shine a light on mental health today and every day. They are committed to funding all stages and aspects of mental health, focusing on awareness, prevention, support and treatment. They've created four delicious smelling charity home candles designed to stamp out stigmas one step and candle at a time. 75% of each sale of one of these candles goes directly to supporting mental health projects and inspirational charities who help individuals and families affected by mental health problems. Through their charity candle collection to date, Jo Malone London has given over £2.5 million to their 11 mental health charity partners, helping to raise awareness and stamp out taboo, providing support, empowering people to recover, to reconnect and to grow. So this Mental Health Awareness Week, why not make your home smell absolutely delightful and contribute to mental health charities by going to www.jomalone.co.uk forward slash how to fail. You can discover the Jo Malone London Charity Candle Collection for yourself at www.jomalone.co.uk forward slash how to fail. Thank you very much to Jo Malone London. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.